Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, the second half, especially of this conversation, gets into philosophical waters where some listeners might start to feel lost. I think the first 20 to 30 minutes or so, we keep things quite grounded. Uh, but Aaron is a philosopher, and I was happy to follow him into some deeper philosophical waters there. But I do want to be clear because we're talking about this class, this online learning community pop up thing with Trip. That is going to stay as grounded as I can possibly keep it. It will get it will get unintelligible to a lay audience over my dead, you know, Zoom body. Um, it will not require any deep philosophical, psychological, or theological training to enjoy that class. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the class a bit more with Aaron at the beginning of this episode, so we can just dive in. Aaron Simmons, thank you for rejoining me uh, on the podcast. Good to have you back. Oh my goodness. It is always a joy to be with you, whether we're talking about pop punk or deep philosophical topics. It is my joy, man. <laughs> That's right. You you have also been on my music podcast, uh, Pretty Good Vibrations, more recently than the You Have Permission one. But the You Have Permission episode we did on Soren Kierkegaard, which is not dissimilar to today's focus on existentialism, 
Uh, fan favorite, listener favorite, one of the more popular episodes I've ever done. So thanks for that. Oh, wow. I'm glad to hear that. that that's uh, quite, quite an honor given all the good stuff you produce, man. Well, you earned it. And the reason that we're talking today about existentialism is because our mutual friend, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity, he and I have launched the page and we are gearing up to start this online pop-up learning community. Sometimes he calls it a reading group. Trip does these, you know, throughout the year. My first one with him, I'm having uh, a killer time prepping for it and, and getting ready. It's called Live Before You Die, Existentialism in Theology and Psychology. You can uh, go right now if you want, dear listener, to exploringexistentialism.com and check out the class, sign up for it. It is pay what you want. So you can come for free and and join us if you want. It's going to be four sessions long. Two of those are going to be seminar length, like more like three hours. It's going to be on Mondays starting October 30th, but it also uh, will be asynchronous. So you can listen or watch it anytime that you have time. It's going to include a bunch of Q&A. Anyway, you can go to the website and, and find out more about it. But that idea that we're going to talk about existentialism in the context of psychology on my end and theology on trip's end. Well, that's all well and good unless you don't really know what existentialism is. <laughs> and existentialism did not start as a psychological tradition nor a theological tradition, but a philosophical tradition. And that is why you are here, Aaron Simmons, existential philosopher, extraordinaire, Kierkegaard scholar, Kierkegaard commonly known as the grandfather of existentialism. So that's why we're here is to kind of talk about existentialism in general from a philosophical perspective, of course, in language that we can all relate to. You don't have to be a philosophy major to uh, enjoy this conversation, but that's that's what we're here for, and I could think of no one better for that task than you, Aaron. No, I appreciate the invitation, and uh, you know, short of going mountain biking or trout fishing, I would just as soon talk about existentialism. So this this is uh, one of my real, real, real honors, man. I love it. That's cool. Well, before we get into it, I wonder if you would just say a little bit about what brought you to existentialism. Maybe that's what brought you to philosophy in general, but just just motivate this from a human perspective a little bit for us. Yeah. So when I talk about existentialism and think about existentialism, I always try to distinguish between what I describe as existential philosophy and existentialism proper as like a historical philosophical movement. And the reason that distinction is important for me is because what drew me into this broad area was not, you know, a historical investment in 19th century German thought. It was instead growing up with a artist as a father and an educator mother and thinking deeply about all kinds of stuff as I lived in the world. And so I remember my grandpa, you know, talking on Sunday afternoons about what had been claimed that morning in church and why we might push back on it. And well, there's other ways to look at things. And so for me, the, the reason I got into philosophy was because I understood philosophy to be an existential project. Yeah. Philosophy was from the outset a question about how should we live, who are we, where are we going, and why does it matter? And so if we approach philosophy as an existential set of questions, a task, 
Then the idea that everything from, you know, ancient philosophy's notion of the spiritual practices by, you know, guiding our soul in the right direction, which is not a religious idea necessarily, it's just that we should be properly directed toward the good. That is an existential issue, and then it becomes later in people like you know Shakespeare, you know, to be or not to be. This is the fundamental question of life: what does it mean to live, and why is it important to keep doing so? But this is also an idea that shows up way more broadly than just technical philosophy. I mean, I often cite Kendrick Lamar's song "Humble." Because it turns out, I think, that existential approaches to thinking well start with the awareness that I don't know everything, and so I need to be humble in order to seek truth, to know the good, to continue living in life, right? So it was that general existential awareness that these questions matter that kind of drew me in. And so not surprisingly, given that that was my kind of human approach, existentialism as a very you know, technical movement that unfolds in the middle of the 19th century and runs through basically the middle of the 20th century, primarily in France and Germany, though there are some outliers, that technical idea became especially compelling because these are the philosophers more recently who have taken up these existential ideas from a very particular vantage point. And that vantage point is embodied, it is lived, it is experienced. And so that's what drew me in. I think that it these days, and you know, having gotten a bachelor's in philosophy, we tend to think of philosophy as something done sitting down, possibly standing up in front of a lecture hall. We tend to think of philosophy as, in some senses, the most abstract of all pursuits, Maybe not if you know a lot about deep mathematics, but, you know, it's it's like people who are humanities driven, who like films and literature and words and and all that. If you want to kind of do the deepest version of that, the most academic version of that, and and I guess in really in ways the most abstract version of that, you go to philosophy. But that is not how philosophy started, which I don't think most people know that the ancient Greek philosophical traditions, most of them were actual schools. Like we call them schools of thought, but they were literally like going to the Naval Academy. You know, like you had your whole day and your week and stuff was planned out. You had basically masters who taught you that you apprenticed under. And so that kind of origin of being about orienting one's life much like someone would do who joins the military on purpose to sort of get their life together and oriented. That's what people were doing in those early philosophical schools. I know you teach philosophy. So if you have anything to add kind of about that era, I just think it's, it's interesting. And most people don't really know about that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. We unfortunately think of philosophy these days as the least practical thing you could possibly study because it's so abstract and so yeah. detached and removed from you know the lived practices of late capitalism that we you know we create all these jokes right you know major in philosophy open a bait shop you know these these kind of things and we get why they're funny because there's a lot of that abstraction that really doesn't still have you know traction in our daily life right but it's the case that philosophy started like you say as schools Because it was way more about what I describe in a lot of my work as a kind of directional risk. 
It was, you know, what do you think's worthy of the life that you live? And for example, I just wrote a new book called Camping with Kierkegaard that we can talk about later. But in that book, I suggest that there's only one real question in philosophy, and it's what's worthy of our finitude. And so if you take that question really seriously— then philosophy spills, right? It, it, you can't contain it in a cup that's made just for the two-and-a-half-hour lecture hall at the ivory tower. It's necessarily something that impacts everything we do because it's fundamentally a mode of being reflectively engaged in the fact that our time matters because we don't have an unlimited amount of it. And that fact necessitates the radicality of decision, right? What then will I do becomes the question that in those various schools, they would teach you the different things you ought to do relative to the different masters or, you know, the the wise one, the philosopher's vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so, you know, the Aristotelian camp was doing things differently than the Pythagoreans who were doing things differently than the Platonic Academy, And those differences, though, were not differences of orientation. They all were full investment, right? Full-throated engagement in living. Where they differed was different views of the direction worthy of the risk of our finitude itself. Yeah. So growing up evangelical – through high school and then being plopped as a philosophy major at 18 years old into a, you know, state school. That to me is kind of the way that I think about a lot of this stuff in terms of an autobiographical lens, because I experienced quite literally and, you know, (laughs) concretely what a lot of listeners have gone through uh, some of them exactly that way. They they went to a different college or grad program that kind of shook things up for them. But a lot of listeners, that's more of a metaphor for what they've gone through. But I, I want to kind of talk about that personal transition through the lens of that term you used, directional risk. I, I love that term. It's the reason that Kierkegaard's work and an existential or existentialist approach to faith has continued to resonate with me. But I think that what I was raised with as an evangelical was that there there was a risk and there was a direction, but the risk was different. So when we talk about a directional risk as people who acknowledge sort of the fundamental truth claims of existentialism, that that we don't have all the information, that we are in an unsure situation by definition as people, right? Evangelicalism wanted to deny that claim. That was not a part of the worldview. We were not on shaky ground. We were actually on very secure bedrock. And so the direction was laid out to us step by step, like literally four steps in the four spiritual laws and, and other, you know, type of, of programs like that of like, here are the things you do. The risk was actually that you would fall off of that and go to hell. So it actually wasn't risky to live faith. It was risky to reject the faith that you were given. I'm sure that you track with all of that, right? That makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But then I get dropped into a secular college with 
philosophy professors who know just a hell of a lot more about the world than I do, who are most of them significantly more intelligent than me, yada, 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 and who've been studying this stuff for decades. And it took a few years for it all to sink in, in part because our school had a really big evangelical population. So it was possible to kind of buffer myself from like constant doubt. But, you know, one way of kind of thinking about what changed for me starting in college is I eventually had to come to the acknowledgement that the directional risk was necessary and that uh, the direction was not so clearly laid out for any thinking individual. You know, you start, you you do apologetics for a while and and you're trying to fill in some gaps, but eventually you get to the point where you, you admit, okay, uh, actually good and intelligent people can disagree about the truth claims of Christianity or specifically evangelical Protestantism or whatever you want to say. And so now the risk and the direction become the one that you're talking about which is the risk is I could live a Christian life or a Buddhist life, or I could go Catholic or Orthodox. I could just be a secular humanist and leave all this shit behind. Each of those carries with it the risk that I'm missing out on what I might get in a different direction. And then the direction is now contested, right? So Started with, well, the direction's obvious. You're on bedrock. The only real risk is you is you give up on this, you backslide, and then you go to hell. Now it's the direction is contested, and the risk is that I go the wrong direction or the wrong direction for me. Maybe I don't even know the difference between those two. And I eventually come to basically this is the existentialist perspective on life. You pick a direction. You go with it. You can keep changing direction. You're never going to know for sure that you're right and you are risking what you might be missing out elsewhere. Did I, did I leave anything out, Aaron? No, I think I think that's exactly right. I was certainly raised in a similar context. I was raised Pentecostal. I still identify as Pentecostal for whatever it's worth. Um, though I I think the things that have shifted in my relationship to the way risk is understood internal to that tradition is exactly as you've laid out. So it is it is possible for us to still inhabit the spaces where we might have been raised and our epistemic perspective to have shifted about how we inhabit them. And the way I think that it might be helpful to think about this shift in risk is actually to unpack what we might call existential faith. So one of the ways that primarily evangelical, but again, you can think more broadly, uh, other religious perspectives, is to understand faith as a religious phenomenon. One has faith because one identifies with traditions historically labeled religious. So we even say this, right? You are religious if you are a person of faith. And this narrows faith to a kind of certainty relative to a particular mode of living And it also requires a kind of certainty about everyone else's mode being problematic, derivative, or lacking. And so, as you say, there's not a lot of risk there. We are the ones who have faith. Faith is a moral necessity. It is a good relative to meaning. Therefore, we have meaningful moral lives, and everyone who doesn't is fundamentally flawed. And so, therefore, the only risk is that I might somehow 
through my own decisions or the influences of others, lose my faith. Well, existentialism, and here I'm talking about it as this historical movement of the 19th and 20th century, and the thinkers here, just for the listener to have an idea, you know, it, it's people like Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, Fodor Dostoevsky, Paul Tillich, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Martin Heidegger, Simone de Beauvoir. It, it's a wide sort of swath of thinkers. And there's a, a kind of you know, set of peripheral figures that also, you know, to various degrees are either hanging on or rejecting the idea but are so proximate that they get you know, in these discussions, right? And what's so interesting about all of those thinkers is in one way or another, they reject the idea that faith is a religious phenomenon at its most basic. Faith is instead what we might term or we might name as the requirement – that follows from the necessity of human agency. And that's, that's a little bit technical, so let's Wait, unpack say that, it, right? Yeah, say that one more time. The, so, so the technical way is faith names the requirement that follows from the necessity of human agency. Said a little <laughs> bit yeah. less, uh, yeah. less technical, because our freedom is absolute, decisions are always required. And so... If we recognize that freedom goes all the way down, which is not to say that you're free to fly if you flap your arms fast enough, right? So it's not rejecting things like physical laws. But freedom at the level of you know, what you understand the good to be, how you decide to navigate your world given your embodied uh, you know, situation, the fact that even as mundane as I can eat today at McDonald's or Burger King, like the reality is – Freedom extends more deeply than we tend to recognize, say, the existentialists. And so what they then suggest, and here in particular I'm drawing on Jean-Paul Sartre, is we all are at some level faithful. The problem is are we in good faith, living intentionally, reflectively in light of that freedom, owning the risk of all these decisions, or are we living in bad faith? The, the French here is mauvais foi, right? Are we living in bad faith, which is the thing we sort of vernacularly mean by bad faith. You're operating in bad faith when you're not being honest with yourself and others about the realities of your situation. So they shift faith away from this religious property that distinguishes the religious from the non-religious, and they instead will talk about faithfulness as, the way I define it, as risk with direction – that's my phrase, but it's drawing on their thinking. Risk with direction is required just because we are two things. We are vulnerable and we are relational. Essentially, we are these things, right? So what does it mean to be essentially vulnerable? It means that my decisions are not going to guarantee the right sorts of outcomes. There's always going to be bones that break there's always going to be this attendant concern that things don't work out the way I had hoped. And the same is true about my relationality. So when I decide to inhabit purposively this, this real freedom that defines my embodied life, I've also got to realize that all of my decisions implicate others. And so what does it mean to be in good faith or to be faithful on purpose? It just means to recognize that even if one identifies as an evangelical Christian, 
you are actively choosing that as the way to express what you take to be true, good, and beautiful. And not only might you be wrong, so I would stress the epistemic awareness that attends existential faith, right? But moreover, others might not be absolutely wrong, even if you're right. And that's the thing that's sort of tricky, is you start realizing not everything is a zero-sum game. When I choose X, it might be the case that Y and Z are also legitimate, reasonable alternatives that really smart, good people choose. And so it requires not only what I describe as an epistemic humility, I could be wrong about my belief or the way of life that I enact, but it also requires hospitality to the voices, perspectives, and critique of others. That's the vulnerable, I could be wrong, and relational, and I need other people to help me. That's the thing I don't think evangelicals have lived into, (laughs) shall we say. Right, and that's why they're skeptical of interfaith dialogue, of ecumenical, you know, movements that involve all types of Christians even. The language I've liked recently is, there's like a fortress mentality uh, to mm-hmm. some kind of religious faith. I'm sure and this goes well beyond Christianity where our job is to defend God's castle, which we yeah. know, we know what that is. We've been given the keys to the kingdom and now we must set up the ramparts and get the can, cannons ready and defend that thing. Yeah from incursions of secularism or the devil or whatever else. Well, I mean, you could understand, right, that a mighty fortress is our God is different than a mighty fortress is our interpretive framework. <laughs> and, and that's what the, these Not churches catchy. have done, yeah. right? <laughs> it, it, it's, too, it's too many syllables, right? Too many yeah, notes. doesn't sing well. And, and yet that's where they have slid, and it does create, in my opinion, an opening – for where existentialism, even the you know atheistic views within a, within existentialism, become profound resources for living Christianly. And the person who's argued this more than anybody else, a book I highly recommend, is by Merrill Westfall, a book just called Suspicion and Faith. And what he suggests is when we understand Nietzsche, Freud, you know, the, the, the radical critiques that come from these sorts of thinkers, what we find is an invitation to better inhabit the idea that the Christian narrative is a call to a very particular, humble, hospitable, and then I'd add the third value, gratitude, right? Humility, hospitality, and gratitude are the kind of, you know, pillars of what Christian living looks like. Unfortunately, if you replace those with this mighty fortress and you say, nope, it's certainty, it is insularity, and it's narrowness, Well, then instead of having a life defined by an inclusive interest in engaging with others, you've got a radically fear-filled life, and yet it's fearful not just of others, but fearful that you might not have the strength to remain so insular, right? And so all of the practices have to then reinforce not only do we have walls, but hell, we got a moat. 
we've got snipers to make sure to pick you off if you get too far. Right. right? And so we police our own borders in a way that makes sure that our own fear is not ultimately of the other. It's also of this weird sense of self. We scare ourselves. And so the way that we avoid owning that is we sort of, you know, retreat back to the ramparts. Right. Well, this is probably a, a good time to bring psychology into the discussion. So the yeah. existentialist philosophers you've mentioned were all psychologically astute, of course. Uh, but most of the people you mentioned were not psychotherapists. They were not actively engaged in doing therapy with clients. And so that's, right. that's why for the class, I, I've brought in Irvin Yalom, who besides being uh, sort of the founder of existential psychotherapy, is also among the most widely read clinicians that other clinicians read. Uh, he's assigned in basically every graduate program and uh, very well loved in terms of his his really kind of deep throated appreciation and and kind of helping us see the the beauty and you know he has a book called the gift of therapy and and the real gift that we get and and this is goes across modalities so your your evidence based folks and your psychodynamic you know deep shadow work folks we all they all love Yalom so what he does that I like is he kind of operationalizes some of this stuff he he makes it real practical down to the kinds of stuff that that send people to therapy uh, and that they can do with their therapist. Now, what's yeah. interesting about Yalom is when you were talking about how the, the non-theistic existentialists, which is most of them, by the way, mm-hmm. they really see religion as contrary to this directional risk. And I think in a lot of instances, they're right. But for mm-hmm. Yalom, basically all, you know, God is what he calls the ultimate rescuer. That basically it's like an end around. It's a it's a loophole in dealing with uh, the necessity of this directional risk in your life. And what's going to be interesting about comparing Yalom to Paul Tillich, the Christian theologian, is that Tillich and as well as other um, existential psychotherapists who were people of faith, to use the phrase again, is, is mm-hmm. they, they will criticize Yalom and saying, no, like, yeah, there's a certain kind of faith, very, maybe quite common, <laughs> that does kind of do an end around and give us a way out of the fundamental uncertainty, the, the heavy weight of our freedom, the fact mm-hmm. that we could be wrong, our finitude, our lack of information, our, our vulnerability, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But there are also versions of Christian faith and, and other religions that embrace that reality yeah. and that give language, religious language, spiritual language for that directional risk. And Yalom is still alive, by the way. He's he's I don't know. That he's like really writing anymore. I keep speaking of in the in the past tense. The, the big book that we're quoting from and, and kind of using is from 1980. But. You know, so so that's kind of interesting. Like he I think he kind of gets that wrong. Uh, I mean, obviously, like I, I just think that Tillich and others are right that you can you can do this within a Christian framework, Kierkegaard himself. Mm-hmm. But what do you think about that? You know, the kind of getting into the nitty gritty of it and seeing where this stuff manifests. I know that you're not 
trained in psychology, but I wonder if you have examples from your own life or students or friends that, that kind of veer more into that psychology therapy domain and, and less in the, you know, <laughs> the more academic philosophical yeah. domain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I've not read Yalom, though it sounds to me like he's the King King's X or Jimmy Eats World, you know, of, of the psychotherapy worlds. Like yeah, everyone loves them. All, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the critics are fans, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah, was it uh, Tech Nine says of himself that he he's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper? So I, I have not read his work, but I think the thing that resonates with me about the way you described it is – it, one of the real problems uh, with the way that an awful lot of conservative evangelical approaches to religion and to faith, one of the real problems that it yields is that it frames the world in a series of dichotomies that actually serve to eliminate our awareness of the freedom that attends our finitude. And what I mean by that is the amount of students that I have who will show up in my philosophy of religion class, say, who, you know, come in with this background with, you know, evangelical group, you know, X, Y, or Z, and they're kind of nervous about this philosophy class because who's this philosopher to tell them about these yeah. big ideas? Yeah. And, you know, they've been warned half the time by totally. their pastors or their leaders. hard with that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it's God is not dead film just played out in their lives, right? Anybody who's seen right. that truly horrible movie. <laughs> and so they come in, and what I wrestle with every time is, A, I have to actually do work to convince them that philosophers are ultimately not doing confessional work. Now, we do personal work, right? I defend views that I take to be true, and they are activated in my life, and I try to live into them. But the idea that there's some sort of you know, revealed confessional level at which I'm trying to invite my students you know, to, to achieve, as if the goal of my teaching the class is to make these disciples, it, it's, it's a hard thing for them not to think as true because they've been trained that the whole way to inhabit their religious existence is to go make disciples of others. You know, it's the model, I won't mention names, uh, but, you know, the parachurch organizations that populate lots of college campuses that will have the big tailgate and they've got free hot dogs. And with the free hot dog, you're going to get a story about Jesus, <laughs> right? And it's like, right. man, maybe just give me a hot dog. Like, you know, does it have to always be this, there's this, other agenda. And for me, when I try to get these students and say, look, guys, philosophers' agendas are simply to invite you to think more effectively about what you think's worth thinking about. It, it's not to get you to think certain things that we hold to be true, because if that's the goal, you're not actually helpful to us, <laughs> right? Like, I, yeah. I need you to push back on the views I hold. And so once I get them to see I'm not trying to convert them to something, then I've got to really wrestle with the dichotomy, which is either evangelical Christianity or atheism. Right. Either radical Jesus died on the cross for my sins and there is no other way to escape eternal damnation or – secular humanism and the nihilism that it invites us to, right? And you might as well just go have sex with your girlfriend because Jesus didn't resurrect. 
It's like, it's funny how everything gets connected in this weird way. Everything is that dichotomy, you know, and it's, it's either, you know, you go get baptized and try to convert other people, or you might as well do heroin tonight. Like there is no way for them to then make sense of the real freedom that attends their existence. And so what I do try to do is not get them to change their religious commitments. That's, again, that's not part of what a philosopher's goal is. But I do try to get them to unpack that dichotomy as already not adequate to human experience. And so when they start breaking that dichotomy open, that's when existentialism, I think, really begins to sing. Because then they can see, oh, shoot, So you mean Nietzsche's proclamation that God is dead is not actually an affirmation of the truth of atheism. It's a reminder about I've got to be responsible for what I hold to be true. I am am fundamentally possessed of the requirement to decide what to worship. Yeah. Whether that be money, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or that be kindness, whether that be a Buddhist investment in certain types of praxis, or, you know, joining Young Life and trying to, you know, work on my campus to make a bunch of Christians. Like, whatever I choose. But the thing is that the death of God then becomes actively crucial for understanding the depth and, I would say, genuine strength of Christian living. Because when we say, hey, God is dead and therefore Christianity is really possible, that's the existential understanding of religious life. God is dead does not mean atheism is true. It means I genuinely have to live up to the responsibility of choosing what will matter. And if I choose to be part of this or that community, whether it be religious or not, ultimately, there is no moral algorithm. There is no religious obviousness. There is no certainty data set, right? Mm -hmm. I, I certainly can think through different arguments in different ways, and some views will be more compelling to me than others. But I also start realizing, wow, like even my background, my history, my geopolitical context, the culture in which I was raised, shape for me which options are, as William James would say, live. Yeah. Right? And so then you start saying, and he, of course, was you know trained in psychology as well as philosophy. And so stressing the, the radicality, the radicality of realizing I have choices – and the choices are not just Jesus or, you know, screwing right. behind the football stadium. Yeah. Like that <laughs> actively empowers us. Sure felt like those were the only two choices for so long. <laughs> well, and, and when those are the only two choices, like the irony is it's not obvious what you should choose. Right. Because it's like, I, know, I, know. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, like God seems boring, you know. If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month, and it includes two, usually three, exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the 
patron-only Facebook group. This seven bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get through Patreon, you get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting something basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. uh, And it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while, you can also at any time go in and change to that. Even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay. Enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do. Um, But I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. I love this idea of breaking the dichotomy because, I, you know, it's funny with this podcast, probably the comment I've gotten, it might be the, the comment more than any other comment, is something like, I listened to the early episode about all the different atonement theories. And then, you know, fill in slightly different versions of this of like, it broke my brain or, you know, I didn't know there were more than there was more than one atonement theory. And what what's so interesting about that is that's all within even conservative Christianity. There are many atonement theories like we're not even dealing with progressivism. We're not dealing with, you know, inerrancy questions for for fully committed even fundamentalist in a in a proper sense. Yep. Fundamentalism in the United States is almost always Calvinist, essentially, but it doesn't have to be. So any just mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, the text is to be taken at, at face value. It is completely without any sort of error. Among those people, yep. there's different atonement theories. Yeah. And so and doctrines of hell and doctrines of hell right? and, 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 and conceptions in. of eschatology. Yep. And that's right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, in, you know, the, the Zondervan books, four views <laughs> on blank. Usually three out of four are conservative. That's right. So even that, I think what it shows is that that dichotomous either or thinking is so strong. It's strong theologically and philosophically, epistemologically, like the way that these communities frame knowledge, commitment and theology. But I also think it has to just be strong psychologically. It has to correlate with something in the human mind. My guess at this point in my age, education and clinical practice is that it has something to do with our tendency for all or nothing or black and white thinking. Oh, yeah. That there oh, is yeah. some relationship there that that because that is kind of the the, the mother of all uh, what we call cognitive distortions or thinking errors. Mm-hmm. That's the one mm-hmm. that many others you know almost nest under and that almost everybody struggles with significantly. So there's something yep. that evolved in us where we just really prefer binary answers to questions to multivalent shades and hues of various colors, right? 
We prefer one atonement. Either that atonement happened or the whole thing's bullshit. The argument between yes. Ken Ham and Richard Dawkins. Uh, we really yep. prefer the argument between Ken Ham and Richard Dawkins to the type of argument that like Karen Armstrong, a That's former right. nun theist would have with, you know, Irvin Yalom mm-hmm. or something like that. Like we just... Right. That's harder for us. It takes more energy. Yeah. It, it requires more of us sort of with our time, with our thought. It brings in more uncertainty. But like what Yalom and other existentialist, um, existential therapists and psychologists will say is when we think we're not dealing with that fundamental plurality of options, mm-hmm. when we think that we are not dealing with the uncertainty uh, the vulnerability, as you said, of our decisions, we are actually fooling ourselves and yeah. that anybody of a certain, let's just say like, you know, without an intellectual disability uh, and above mm-hmm. who has sort of the the full intellectual capacities that the average homo sapien has. If we are living there, we are we are sublimating it in some way. We are pushing it down. Or, you know, for people who like really involved in apologetics, maybe we're very actively trying to combat it um, to manage that anxiety. But that the ultimately responsible, honest, truthful thing, and I would say as as an existentialist Christian, the faithful thing is to acknowledge those limits and then to deal Mm -hmm. with them and to face them in whatever way we can, as honestly as we can. And I think that we are free to use the resources and whatnot from our faith traditions to do that. Some of those resources will will not work because they will actively resist and they will they will actively push that dichotomy back. you know, as like a uh, interpretive grid over the whole thing. And once you've right. once you've lost it, you can't go back to that. Can't put that genie back in the bottle. But mm-hmm. that's kind of what I think is going on at more of a, in more psychological language, which is why it's so interesting for me. Like the most interesting question to me right now in my life is how to, how to fit that together with faith and theology Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. for myself and for clients. That's just kind of where all my favorite questions are residing right now. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I mean, it's interesting. So you basically are hitting upon what I would describe is the biggest confusion about existentialism. And here uh, I'm going to represent a particular approach to this historical movement because, of course, there's always, just like with theories of the atonement, there's lots of different readings of these traditions. And so as a scholar of existentialism, I think it's important to understand that there are metaphysical and epistemological ways of interpreting existentialism. What do you mean by those two terms before you go on? Yeah, so so by metaphysical, think about it as a a what statement. So when we say that there's a metaphysical interpretation of existentialism, we are saying what is the case? What is true about the beings that we are? What's true about reality that we face? On the other hand, there's an epistemological or a how statement which says Well, whatever the case, the what is, how we approach it is a particular way given the contexts we find ourselves in. Now, an astute reader could say, well, wait a minute, but aren't the contexts a certain kind of what? So these are certainly going to overlap at some level. 
But at the most basic, I think we can parse these two options if we go back to both the statement God is dead or the definitional statement of existentialism offered by Jean-Paul Sartre when he says when he says that existence precedes essence. This is basically the claim there is no what that there is to be us until we make that happen as a result of our actions and the decisions that we make in our life. And so for Sartre, it is deeply troubling that the reality we face is one where God is not deciding for us how to go forward. Yeah, and I'll bring Yalom into this and just say he will take Sartre's line and he'll say – the existential re- recognition from a psychological perspective is that life is fundamentally meaningless. There is no mm. anchor of meaning in the divine, yep. anything like that. And the Christian existentialist will will quibble with that and will say, well, that mm-hmm. might be true. I think what, what I'm hearing you say is that's the metaphysical version of the existential that's claim right. is that, hey, yes. guys, World War II happened. And we now know that there is no ultimate meaning to any of this stuff. I actually think that's pretty short sighted. I I think that if we zoom out and by the way, we know more than Jean-Paul Sartre knew about the length Mm -hmm. of the universe and and stuff like that. I mean, there have been quite a few advances in physics and in other forms since then. And I would say, well, I mean, things like the fine tuning argument, for instance, definitely make me think like, that is actually to, to claim we know that life is meaningless mm-hmm. is actually that's to go out ahead of our skis, uh, not quite yes. as badly as the as the creation museum docent might be doing, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> of a similar form. And so I would yeah. just the way that I would kind of couch that as someone with faith is we don't know if there is ultimate meaning in the divine. That's the existential situation is that yeah. we hope we can act mm-hmm. as if we can feel assurance, spiritual mm-hmm. assurance through engaging with our faith, which other our co-religionists will will report over time. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we don't know. And there's no bedrock there. And so that's I, I, I hope I'm not kind of scooping you. No, that, that's that's the epistemological framing, the knowledge framing, rather than the metaphysical framing. Right. That's exactly right. The difference is existence precedes essence as a metaphysical claim. There is no God. Right. So now read the death of God as there is no yeah. God, period, full stop. Right. And start to his credit says I mean, I think he holds that view, right? But the the idea is he then's going to say, this is really troubling. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so this is not good news, says Sartre. This is really, really scary. It means that now the way we make sense of our freedom will have absolutely no moorings to any kind of way of adjudicating among different possible directions. Mm. And he realizes this is troubling, right? But the other thing that Sartre will then say is it's important to realize that when existence precedes essence metaphysically, we then are the only condition of reality having any meaning. Yeah, without people making meaning, there is no meaning. There is no meaning. Now, the the problem with this view, the metaphysical interpretation, is not that it's false, It might be true, right? It might be the case that there is no God. Atheism is true. And it might be the case that all is meaningless outside of human action. 
The problem is Sartre also holds an epistemic interpretation, and what I'm going to suggest is the epistemic interpretation makes the metaphysical interpretation either incoherent or self-refuting. So it's not just not preferred. It's not just that we could go beyond it. It actively undermines itself. Okay, everybody put on your thinking caps, take take a sip of your coffee, pause this for 10 seconds, collect yourself. We're going to get like a straight philosophy lesson here from Aaron, and then we'll, we'll unpack it if we need to. Okay, let's hear it. So if you approach this epistemologically, then the reality is really quite simple. Anything that you know or think you know is conditioned by the embodied perspective that you have as a knower. In other words, you can't get outside of yourself to know what's true about the world. Mm -hmm. Sartre thinks both of these things. Nietzsche thinks both of these things, right? Atheism and a kind of meaninglessness. And we are fundamentally perspectival. Yeah. So if you're fundamentally perspectival, if you can't get out of your perspective, how can you get out of your perspective enough to claim that there's no God? That's the that's the rub. Right. And so I want to suggest that the metaphysical interpretation of existentialism is either incoherent because it now can't be held consistently with that awareness of perspective or self-refuting because it necessarily is actually saying when I hold this view, I'm not really an existentialist. Right. And so that's a problem. What I think, and you know, you can tell me if I am like a guy with a bachelor's of philosophy, casually dismissing the greatest minds of the last 500 years. But what, what, it, what I think from a psychological perspective that these philosophers are actually rejecting, not all of them are philosophers, by the way, they're popular scientists and stuff like that who, you know, mm-hmm. put forth these, these various atheistic views. I think that what mostly they're rejecting is not like a well-defined philosophically nuanced theism. What they are actually rejecting is the the sort of total package of Western religion, which includes the history of, you know, being identified with the king and, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the way that religious language was used to promote and defend slavery, colonialism, you know, wars of aggression, mm-hmm. the way that it was even used to, to motivate the Holocaust. You know, Hitler was a savvy politician. And that is what they're rejecting. Because when I, whenever I talk with people about it, I mean, I do it on the show and with the I don't believe in that God episodes, which are usually with atheists. And like we, they, we don't we do disagree But the thing that they are forcefully denying is never sort of like my vision of, you know, uh, a kind of non-interventionist loving force or or whatever. It's like this bigger kind of um, I would consider epistemologically naive vision Mm -hmm. that we so often get from religion. And so that's kind of why I prefer the the more Kierkegaardian version of existentialism, which is like, we don't know. That's right. Uh, we have been told that God is good and exists and all this. And now, well, that in Kierkegaard's time, nope, almost nobody was atheistic. I mean, there was a little bit like right. 
intelligentsia in, in Russia and, and elsewhere, right. covered in some of those great novels like the Brothers Karamazov. But but it wasn't a popular thing. Now, if I'm born in 2000 in the West, uh, probably more people are telling me there's no God than are telling me there is a God. Yeah. And and the fact remains, we just don't know. We don't know. I won't yeah, know right. until I die. And then if I and if there is nothing, I won't know that there was nothing, <laughs> you know, so I, I'm doing it with incomplete information here. I think that's right. The thought would be when we lean into this epistemic awareness, right, that perspectivalism is inescapable. You can't get outside yourself to, you know, understand the way things are. You can only understand the way things seem to you. That doesn't have to then lead to the what's called a non sequitur, a thing that doesn't follow. That doesn't lead to, therefore, we can't know. It just means that we're not going to be able to know that we know, <laughs> right? It, it's actually important to understand that if we lean into the epistemic existentialism, then we get to realize that Sartre doesn't have to be – you know, silly when he affirms this metaphysical view, that just becomes his direction. And Kierkegaard's direction, which was, you know, Danish Lutheranism with this kind of pietistic flavor in the late 19th century, that these alternatives now become a variety of lived options precisely because our perspectives require of us decision about what will matter. And so what I don't want to do is suggest that somehow – Atheism is off the table. No, that's a radically contingent possibility for what might be true, and it might actually yield a more meaningful, significant life defined by hope. But it's also the case that certain types of theism are equally plausible given those sorts of commitments. And this is why what we start realizing is the problem with the fundamentalism that we were talking about earlier is not – what they say is true about God, I mean, for what it's worth, I still affirm a radical personal conception of the divine. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the Boston personalist kind of line when it comes to understanding God. And yet what's so problematic about that fundamentalist view? It's not just the view of God, right? It's not even necessarily the view of God. It's the way that view is held. And so the problem becomes – the way we hold the view tends then to come back around and impact the view itself so that now God's not just personal, but God becomes really authoritative, right? God becomes dictatorial because the way we held the view was with, we thought, absolute certainty, no ambiguity, dichotomized in relation to all other alternatives. And then not surprisingly, that way, that epistemic commitment impacts the what we say about God, God becomes, you know, like pretty angry and pretty mean and pretty, you know, harsh, like all those things start following. So for me, the real importance of existential faith is to realize that when we lean into the epistemic approach, Sartre was faithfully trying to become an atheist. Kierkegaard was faithfully trying to become a Christian. And the judgment we make about which of those directional risks is the right one is always something we can only articulate from already being located in the world. Right. And that's why faith is not something reserved for religion. 
Faith becomes either something we are living into on purpose or something that we are actively diminishing and ignoring and letting something else replace it. And so in Camping with Kierkegaard, I suggest what replaces it for an awful lot of us, and I would say the vast majority of you know, evangelical, white evangelical Christians in America, is a success logic. Because notice how success works, and this is psychotherapeutic, though I am not trained in that space. We really like being able to have very clear markers of our achievement. Number of baptisms. We got the building funded. Yeah. Right? I mean, and and my wife does this at the end of the day. She will make a to-do list like after the fact. So she feels unbelievably affirmed Honestly, at the end of the day. That's a good idea for maybe for, for some clients. I might keep that in my back pocket. Right? <laughs> and and it's not that we shouldn't set goals and do strategic things to achieve those goals, right? You wanted a PhD in you know psychotherapy, so you had to do work to make that happen. It opens up certain directions for the rest of your life. It's not that being successful is bad. It's that if our value theory is anchored in external manifestations, checks on a algorithmic list, the applause of others, the size of our bank account, the number of seats in our churches, what we've done is said, we don't have to worry about faith because look, we are the thing you all should try to be. Mm. And so The problem with this, right, and I'm sure you've got clients like this. I certainly have had lots of people reach out to me after hearing talks. One of two things happens. You either achieve all you set out to do and realize that it didn't give you the meaning you thought it would, right? Bank accounts are not going to yield purpose. (laughs) Right. And similarly, you might not achieve what you set out to do, in which case it is overwhelmingly exhausting to wake up every day feeling like a failure. Yeah. What faithfulness does as an orientation, as an existential awareness, it says, hey, where do you tap real meaning in life? Where do you find real joy? What are the actions in which you engage that whether or not we finish that PhD, I'm good, right? It's that question. You know, I always find myself whenever I talk about this falling back into this like Jay-Z lyric where he says, you know, hell yeah, baby, I'm good. And the idea is that's effectively a hip hop version of it's well with my soul. <laughs> but notice, yeah, that's good. <laughs> right? It's well with my soul is not a success logic. Right. It actively was a song written when all of the things had been lost. Yeah. And he says, man, am I a failure? Should I jump off the cliff? Or do I say when the sea billows roll, <laughs> I'm still good. That does not mean we don't work for justice. It doesn't mean that we're not horrified and angered by the realities of homophobia and racism and, you know, gender essentialism and patriarchy. It just means we do not have to be defined in our core, our essence, by a very particular understanding of our existence. If existence precedes essence, I actively get to do work Mm -hmm. deciding what will be important in my existence such that my essence is not wrecked by things like late capitalist conceptions of prosperity. So that's a 
an, a radically existentialist set of commitments that I think speak to where we are now and undermine what I would understand as the idol that we've introduced as the alternative to existential faith. And again, this is what my argument in Camping with Kierkegaard is all about because the subtitle, back to philosophy as a way of life, the subtitle of my book is Faithfulness as a Way of Life. And I do not mean it religiously. Hmm. I mean, what do you hope, (laughs) right? And so when it comes, you said we can't know. You're right, we can't know that we know. And so when people say, well, why then would you choose Christianity? Why do you still decide to identify that way? My answer is always pretty simple. It's like, look, I can give you arguments and stuff if that's the game we want to play. You know, I've trained in this stuff. But my real answer, because I really hope that God looks like Jesus. Yeah. And that hope is a hope that actually invites me then, I think, to live toward social justice as part of the way of life that brings me joy. Mm -hmm. But it's also being able to recognize it's not okay that we live in a world where the agency that is so absolute for the existentialists is denied or at least minimized to historically marginalized communities, yeah. right? And poor communities as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so linked it's so linked with resources and access and all of that. Yeah. If you're poor, if success does not define you, mm-hmm. you don't get to engage in the existential decision that actually is what defines your humanity. Yeah. So we strip your very humanity away in our attempt to replace faithfulness with a success logic. And that, I would suggest, is precisely the fundamentalist alternative to something like a existential version of human life. 100%. Uh, Aaron, I now I'm in a problematic position where there are like six different ways I could go in response to that I think four of them are going to end up in the online learning community with Trip <laughs> in the class. So I, I'm going to instead use this as a, as Trip would say, a lure uh, for people to come join us. Um, exploringexistentialism.com. The classes, the, the sessions start on October 30th. And we're going to get into a lot of that stuff. You know, values and commitment work in therapy yeah. uh, is just one of those directions to go. Such a good conversation. I think we definitely succeeded in in what I was hoping we would do, which is kind of set this up a bit more philosophically, tie it in to the type of evangelical or conservative Christianity that that most of us were raised with and that that most of us are at least quite familiar with, if not. And uh, we also got to talk about your book, which I wanted to have an excuse to talk about Camping with Kierkegaard. A link to that book will be in the show notes as well as the class. Again, the classes pay what you want or can. So I was going to say, let me just also plug the class because I've done a class with our mutual friend mm-hmm. trip. And for what it's worth, uh, people might be interested in this. The book Camping with Kierkegaard actually came out of a homebrewed online pop-up community class that yeah. Trip and I did simply called Walking with Kierkegaard on Getting Lost and Finding Faith. Yeah. And so it was doing that with Trip that led to my awareness. That's you cool. know what? There's a book that needs written. Yeah, that's cool. And it, it, it needs to be personal. It needs to be about my experiences in the outdoors. And so what I will offer, and this is uh, via Trip's generosity, 
to any of your listeners as a way of trying to goose their interest in how awesome these classes are uh, by Homebrewed, if they will email me a copy of their receipt buying Camping with Kierkegaard, I will email them back an exclusive link to all of the content of that Walking with Kierkegaard course. Cool. And so my email is just simmonsphilosopher at gmail.com, simmonsphilosopher at gmail.com. If they will email me just a screenshot or a picture of their receipt, Camping with Kierkegaard, I will email them back the link and the password to be able to access all of our six episodes, yeah. all of the extra resources we produced. And I really think that they will see very quickly how amazing these courses are, and then hopefully they will hop in for the one that you guys are doing, yeah. because I know I'm going to try to be there uh, because they are fun, they are engaging, they are deep, and yet they are radically personally invested. And that's something that's really hard to find. Yeah, I'm I'm like really, really excited. Uh, I'm excited for to try out the format, and I'm excited for the topic, uh, hence the six different ways I could have gone with your final <laughs> statements there. It's it's too much. There, it's too much to stay mentally organized and 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 I think yeah I think we kind of accomplished our goal here. So Aaron Simmons, thank you so much. We'll put your email address in the show notes as well. So if people want to yeah. pick up a copy of Camping with Kierkegaard and then also get access to the Walking with Kierkegaard uh, course materials, that'd be rad. And yeah, yeah, okay, I think that's it for today. And uh, I'll be seeing you around the time this Very airs soon. at Theology Beer Camp yeah. uh, in Missouri. I'm looking forward to Very stoked. forward to give you a hug and having a having a brew with you. Yeah, man. No, I cannot wait. I hope you're bringing uh, one of the mini guitars that uh, line your walls. <laughs> I will uh, not be traveling with a guitar. That's Trey Pearson and Dan Hasseltine and Flamey Grant's job for the live Well, they're, they're going to, I'm sure, have some instruments. Uh, I, I know that Tim Whitaker of the New Evangelicals and I are planning to have some sort of drum off. Uh, and I, I think may, maybe we can just give you a microphone and have you be like the Mackay Pfeiffer who's uh, narrating this this epic battle in Springfield. <laughs> We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm not signing up for anything. I, I, I pre-committed, I pre-committed to too much last year in the way of karaoke and other, other events. And so this year I'm, I'm holding my cards closer to the chest and I will, I will step into my unbound freedom of, in response to directional risk in the moment at beer camp and I will that sounds not good to me and it is always well it's always important to understand that no is just as much a decision <laughs> so right. yeah right. man that's right. <laughs> that's right all right thank you so much Aaron hey thank you so much for having me